Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. Check back weekly to stay up to date with what God is doing here in the life of our church. To learn more information, you can find us online at sturkey.church. Our prayer here at the church at Sturkey Hills is that you are moved by this message. Guys, thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 today as we continue to journey through this amazing book written 2,500 years ago, and it's still applicable today. You see, God's Word even testifies of itself. It says the things written from days in the past is still current and viable today. What was written in God's Word 3,000 years ago is still real for you today. Tell your neighbor, it's still real. Now, we live a life, and often we wonder, we have questions, we're confused, we make bad choices. And when we do, it's because we simply have not been where we need to be in God's Word. Because God's Word will tell us everything we need to know about God and about ourselves, and about how we can live a fruitful, viable, uh, God-honoring life. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, we just covered the last couple of weeks, it was the missing link. And Nehemiah was just a slave in the citadel, and uh, he was living the dream. He was a food taster for the king. He was rolling with the big dogs, and God came in, had an encounter with him. He sent a family member uh, to tell him that things in his home country were undone. Now, he had never been there. It was 800 miles away, but God just stirred his heart with a passion and with a vision, and he said, I want you to go back and see to it that there's a wall to protect the, the, Jerusalem, the center, the hub of God's relationship with the world. And so Nehemiah saw God's handiwork. He went back. He motivated the people. And in 52 days, they literally built a wall a couple of miles long, 40 feet tall, 8 feet at the top, huge. It was a miracle of God among men. And so that's what God does. He, he, he incorporates uh, you into his kingdom agenda, and it is an amazing thing. Now, they got the wall done, and they, it would have been easy for them to sit down and say, okay, that's cool, we accomplished a great goal, now what's next? God is never comfortable with you being comfortable. God is never satisfied with you sitting down. God is always on the move, and he's always encouraging and motivating and moving you to do the same. Now, whether we choose to do it or not is up to us. The same thing happened for the nation of Israel. So they finished this wall. They're inside. You know, I mean, they're celebrating. They're having a big party. What do we do next? Because their goal was, wow, what, what, look what we've been missing We've been missing a real God living in real time with us. So what can we do so that we don't go back to that place where God has delivered us from? What is the thing that we can do? So they said, uh, call the priest, Ezra. We want him to read the word because they had starved for the word. Ezra began to read the word at dawn. He read until lunchtime, six-hour sermon. All right, and so they just listened. They were just eaten up by it, consumed by it. The Bible says that they responded by first amening everything they heard, it began to resonate in their soul that God's word, God was speaking to them through his living word. The Bible says then they began to raise their hands and cry out hallelujah. The Bible says then they fell on their knees before God and just worshiped him. 
God had stirred them so deeply, so richly, so really that something was different, man. It was changing on the inside. No longer was it just a superficial religion. Something happened on the inside where they felt the true and living God speaking into the depth of who they were. And so in chapters 9 and 10, Nehemiah steps to the plate and he says, Now what can we do so that we never go back to that place where we have come from? The Bible says they did two things. At the beginning of chapter 9, first they fasted. It means in their prayer time, in their worship, they began to cut out things physical so that they could experience something spiritual. Fasting is enormous in God's Word. Some of the greatest things that God does or reveals in all of His Word happens on the heels of a season of fasting. Fasting is a place where you say, God, I want to take something physical out of my life because I want to get something spiritual. I want you to speak into who I am. So often people will take away food, part of their food. They may do a Daniel diet or a Daniel fast, and they'll take certain portions of their food out of their life. Sometimes people will do like Jesus did, a water-only fast where they don't eat anything. They simply drink water. Uh, sometimes people take away things of convenience. They take away social media. They take away entertainment. They take away uh, caffeine. They take away only certain parts, all the while removing something physical to experience something spiritual so they fasted and then they did this amazing thing they separated themselves from the people of the world they realized man we look way too much like the stinking world they said you know we we've married them we run with them we work with them we act like them we speak like them we we are God's people and we you can't tell by looking now, here's what's amazing. Spin the calendar forward 2,500 years, and we are the church of modern-day America, and we look way too much like the world we live in. And when we look like the world, we will be ineffective in changing and impacting the world. And so we, just like Israel, sometimes we just need to separate ourselves from things and people in our world. While we were in Brazil... We spoke in schools, and I told those students, I said, listen, you need to look around at your classmates, and for those people who call themselves friends, and their goal, their everyday ambition is to move you further away from God's desire for your life, if that's their goal, you need to cut them out of your circle. You need to trim your circle. Tell your neighbor, it's time you trim your circle. The Bible says we're supposed to love everybody. Some people, we need to love at a distance. Send them a postcard. Send them a text message. Don't let them in your circle. Because if they come into your circle to ruin your walk with God, to bring you down from all that God desires and intends and designed you to be, you need to remove them from your circle. And if it hurts their feelings, tell them you're going to pray for them. Amen? You need to clean your circle. And that's what they did. They separated themselves. They fasted. They said, okay, we're here, God. We're your people. Now, what is it? you have for me. Now, chapter 9. Not going to read it. Going to paraphrase it. Going to tell you what happened. Going to give you the cliff notes. It's the longest prayer in the whole Bible. Longest prayer. Nehemiah and the people are praying. And what the prayer consists of is a, re, uh, a, a, a retelling of the history of the nation of Israel. And it looks like this. It looks like rebellion, repentance, Restoration, repeat. Rebellion, repentance, restoration, 
repeat over and over and over. It just recites it. God, you've been great, and you opened yourself to us and introduced yourself to us, and, and we were consumed by your greatness and your love, and then we turned our back on you and walked away from you, and we found ourselves defeated and uh, separated from you in this miserable state, and we realized it, and all we did was cried out, and there you were with your arms open, ready to, re, re, uh, ready to forgive us and restore and redeem us. As, and it's a cycle. A vicious cycle goes over and over and over. Now, you remember I said that God's word says, testifies of itself, that what is spoken in the Old Testament is true for us in the church age? Let me ask you a question. Has your life ever looked like rebellion, repentance, restoration, repeat? Rebellion, repentance, restoration, repeat. I'm looking for honesty. I'm confessing my life has looked much like that. If your life has had seasons or times in your life when it looked like that, say amen. Say so you're not alone. Isn't that good to know you're not alone? We're a bunch of jokers. We're all the same. If you, didn't, if you didn't confess that, it's because you don't get it, okay, because that's who you are too. Why? How is that? Why is that battle so real, so strong? Because I want you to get something. We talk about it regularly. When, when we meet Jesus face-to-face, -face, when, when we realize, man, I'm, I'm a sinful person and I need Jesus in my life and he saves me, he goes down deep into my soul, into the spirit who I am, and he begins a redemptive, saving, restoring, new creature process on the inside. So right now, my soul, man, it's wrapped in the righteousness, the rightness of Jesus when God sees me, he sees my spirit surrounded in what Jesus has done for me. That's how he sees me. However, when I look in the mirror, I don't always see that. I see this. I see the flesh container that carries my soul, my spirit around. It has not been redeemed. It won't be redeemed until we get a resurrected body. So there's a battle going on. And many times the flesh wins over the spirit. Paul talked about it. In the New Testament, and it looks like rebellion, repentance, restoration, and repeat. Now, in the middle of this retelling of the history of Israel, Nehemiah throws in the key of why God is always ready to receive you back into his love relationship. I want to tell you something about God. Never, never Will you say, God, I am so sorry. I'm brokenhearted over my sin. I repent. I want you to forgive me and invite me back in. Never will God, would, never will God say, yeah, you said that the other day. Yeah, I, I've run out of my grace for you. He'll, never, he'll say, I'm so glad that you turned. I've been right here all the time. You see, he never moves. He's standing there with open arms towards you all the time. And when something, when your relationship with God is broken, it's not God's fault. He's right there all the time in the same posture as he was the moment you met him. So when we return, when we repent, when we change our mind and agree with him, he's right there to demonstrate his love. Nehemiah sums it up in verse 10, and he says, You, during this time, made a great name for yourself. You know what Nehemiah is saying? He said, all the while, you let, us, you let us rebel, repent, restore, repeat. All the while, it demonstrates two things. The faithfulness of him and the unfaithfulness of us. It's always the case. 
He's always faithful. We are never faithful. We have seasons, moments, and times where we fight a good fight, where we're more faithful than others. Certainly, we have times when we can compare ourselves to the next person down from us in their battle for faithfulness and compare to them, I must be faithful. But we're all unfaithful. We just are. Flesh gets in the way at this battle. And so he says, you made a great name for yourself. Now, Nehemiah, this is 445 B.C., so 2,500 years ago. Nehemiah is saying, God, over the last 1,500 years, that story that I just retold, you all the while made a name for you, and it is faithfulness, and that name will stand for all of eternity. So I want you to know something before we move any further. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, maybe you're not on a spiritual journey, no matter where you are, there's a God. He's real, and he's faithful. Faithful in his mad, crazy, passionate love for the objects of his affection, the pinnacle of his creation, which is you. Tell your neighbor God loves you. Tell your neighbor just like you are. Sometimes we just need to be reminded God loves us. So now he finishes up chapter uh, 9. He gives a conclusion and he defines where they've landed because of their relationship with God of this partial commitment. He says in verse 36 of chapter 9, so today, all that being said, you've been faithful, we've been unfaithful, we find ourselves, verse 36, as slaves. In the very land you gave to our ancestors to eat its fruit and to enjoy its good things, we are slaves. Well, now, wait a minute, man. They just finished this wall. God just did this amazing thing, and yet he says we are still slaves. Nehemiah finds himself leading this people where he's wondering, how can we not do what we've done our whole existence? How can we move forward and not be that same people? How? Let me ask you something. Have you ever looked at somebody in their a little dip, a little dance move? I didn't like it. Okay, I don't know what that was? Just I was so fast, I left sound. Okay, <laughs> there'll be a sonic boom following. How, how have you ever wondered? Have you ever been in this place where you wondered? Are they faking that that relationship with God? Is why is, there, why is it they talk and act and shine differently than I do? I confess that I'm a Christian. I've prayed to receive Christ. I was baptized. I attend church. But why is it it's not like vibrant, like alive in me, like in that other person? Why is it that mine just seems a little bit distant? Why is it that I, I go to church I read the Bible, I pray, but it's just not like this alive thing. It's not like this thing that when I wake up in the morning, it's like, okay, God, what's today? Have you ever found yourself in that? I certainly have. And I want you to know something. It's not God's desire that that's what your walk with him looks like. And it wasn't God's desire that Israel looked like Israel. So Nehemiah, man, he gets it. 
And he says, okay, what can we do so that we don't remain the same? You've heard the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So church, what is it for us? Why, what, you know, what can we do so that we don't stay where we are? What can we do so we can expect a different result? What can we do? Well, Nehemiah tells us. He says, listen, there's not enough wows in your life to remember. And there's not enough nows in your life to celebrate with God. That's what it is. You know, if I said, have you had a moment, man, where it's just great with God? And many people go back to the place where they met God through Jesus, his son. And, man, the Holy Spirit convicted them, and, and they gave their life to Jesus. Man, it was a good moment, right? I mean, if it wasn't a good moment, you didn't have a real moment, okay? It's a good moment when the king of glory comes into your sinful life and says, I'm going to make this right. This good stuff. And so we have that moment, but God doesn't want us to live in that single solitary moment in the past. He wants us to live in the now. He wants us to rem remember great wows of the past, but he wants you to have great nows in the presence, in the present, in his presence. And so Nehemiah says, okay, here's where we are. Enough is enough. We ain't doing this anymore, okay? We're going to change everything because what we've been doing has not been working. And so here's what we're going to do. He says in verse 38 of chapter 9, he says, because of all this, we are going to enter into a binding covenant in written form. Our leaders, our Levites, our priests have affixed their names on a sealed document. He says, no more general comments, no more verbal commitments, no more partial ends. He says, we're going to write it down, we're going to sign it, we're going to seal it, and we're going to see it through. How many of you have made a verbal commitment to God before where you say, God, I, I know I've messed this all up, I, I'm going to do better, only to find out tomorrow you're right back in the same mess you were yesterday. Anybody ever done that? Anybody? Well, okay, I'm not alone. It's good. Okay. Nehemiah saw it too 2,500 years ago. In today's world, this is how, you know, it says nothing new under the sun. We're just people being ignorant. Even then, verbal chatter was a partial commitment. Sometimes I'll share a story. Even preaching, I'll say, you got to hear this story. This is true. Anybody ever say that? Anybody ever say, I, I want to tell you something, man, this is true, true story. Everybody say, anybody say that, say, I do. What are we saying when we're saying that? If we don't qualify it as a true story, everything else we speak is a lie, right? You know, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just tell the truth all the time. I do that. If I tell a story, it's pretty true. I don't know why I have to say, all right, you got to hear this true story, okay? So what do we say now? Like if you go to buy a car or you uh, contract with somebody to do something for you and they say, yeah, you can have this car for $25,000 or, uh, and we're going to throw in this and we're going to throw in this or, okay, I'm going to build this thing for you and it's going to cost you $50,000 and this is what it includes. That's great, right? But you will not believe anything unless you either say or realize, can I get this in writing? Anybody ever said that? Probably with your spouse. Your spouse says, I'm going to start doing this. Uh, can I get that in writing? Does anybody ever say that? Yeah. 
Nehemiah knows it too, 2,500 years ago, that this chatter means nothing, but he says, we're going to change things. No more verbal commitments. We're going to write it down. We're going to sign it, seal it, and see it through. And so that's where we move into chapter 10. Can I get that in writing? Now, we're not going to cover all five of your points on the back of your worship guide. We're going to cover the first two. <laughs> That's encouraging, okay? But I want to invite you and encourage you and challenge you to come back and hear points three, four, and five next week because I really think this is a game changer. It was for Israel. It can be for you. It will be for our church. And so we need to dive into this. So he says in chapter 10, verse 1, on the sealed documents were the following names. Now, I want you to skip down to verse 28 because 2 through 27 is a bunch of Hebrew names. Now, you can spend your time trying to say them. I ain't doing it. All right? Now, we pick up in verse 28. It says, now the rest of the people. This is who Nehemiah is saying. We're going to write it down. We're going to sign it, seal it, and see it through. He says they're going to be, Nehemiah has already said in verse, uh, verse 1, he's included. He says, now the priest, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple attendants, and all those who have separated themselves from the neighboring peoples because of the law of God, along with their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all whom are able to understand, hereby participate in this thing. Now, now let's unpack it a little bit. Because this is 2,500 years ago, and if we as a church are going to commit to something in writing, if we're going to say, okay, this is what I'm going to challenge myself with, this is the pact, the covenant that I'm making with God Almighty, I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to sign it, seal it, and see it through, who's going to be included? It starts at the top. It, he, Nehemiah says, I did, I'm the governor. And then the priest did, so the, 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 the leadership of the church have to be in on this. I have to determine, God, what is it you want me to agree and make covenant with you about? What is it you want me to write it down and sign it and see it through? Because tell me, and I want to do that. It happens at the top tier of leadership. Then it moves to the priest and the Levites. The priests were uh, Levitical. They were Levites, tribe of Levi. And, and, and now it's, it's the, the second tier missions leaders. It's those who lead preschool, those who lead children, those who lead youth, those who teach Sunday school class, those who are any level of leadership, they're included. There's the, the, Nehemiah wants them in the game. Now he goes on, he says the gatekeepers, he wants them to sign a covenant and to be a part of this relationship that's different with God. Who's the gatekeepers? Our greeters are standing at the gate. Maybe you're a greeter. It's time you up your game. It's time you put, a new, put some new sunshine in your face when you're welcoming somebody. You know what aggravates me? Sometimes I'll see a greeter. Hey, good to have you at church. And you know what they're thinking? No, it ain't. Tell this. It's very sad. Okay? We all, not, we don't fake it. But if, listen, if the true and living king of glory lives, takes up residence in your soul, okay, extends from the inside and begins to move on the outside, you should authentically be excited when somebody has joined in with us collectively to worship our God. It should excite you. 
You shouldn't have a title of greeter with a lanyard that says, my name is Leroy, I'm a greeter. You should be a greeter just because you are here and someone else is here to have an encounter with the same God who created everything and has chosen to love you right where you are. That ought to be exciting. It ought to stoke your soul. And yet sometimes, man, it becomes religion. Glad you're here. You know what? God from heaven. He, when we say that, when we act like that, he's saying, no, you ain't. And I believe sometimes God's saying, I'm not even glad you're here. Look at you. You didn't come prepared for anything. You didn't come expecting anything. You came to check a box. You could have checked it at the house and got the same thing. So greeters are included. Then it goes to the singers. Oh, Joe, that's you. That's the worship team. Okay? That means Kevin over here pounding on the drums, and he's great. It means, man, he's celebrating the God of glory. It means he's excited in that little box about what God is doing in our midst. It means right over here when Gene is blowing on a harmonica, which that blew me away that a harmonica works for worship, and he blesses my soul. And he's blowing his harmonica. It means his heart needs to be right. It means, it means during the week he needs to be prepared, and when he comes, he's ready to worship. Okay? You can't live like the devil and lead worship. Okay, if you do, you're leading them to a different God. So he goes to the singers. He says, you guys are in. And then he goes to the temple attendants. Everybody who serves anywhere, he says, I want you in the game. Now, so far, there's many of us who have dodged the bullet because we ain't serving nowhere. Say, whew, he's talking about servants. I don't serve anywhere. Don't bask in the greatness of your, of your non-commitment. Okay, just don't do that. Okay, because he, he, listen. Listen, even 2,500 years ago, Nehemiah had people in Israel who were spectators and they wouldn't get in the game to serve. And it's so amazing to me that the greatest adventure on the planet is God's kingdom agenda activated through the local church. That's what the Bible, the New Testament, is all about. God doing work among men through the local church and people choose to be spectators. I have never seen anybody on any team that when the coach says, I need you to go out on the field, oh, no, coach, take me out. I don't, I don't want to play. I just want to watch with my uniform, okay? Do you know anybody like that? No. And yet at church, it's like, yeah, I'm not serving. You serving? No, man, I want to sit over here. I'm going to sit over here and watch them serve. It's time some of us start giving instead of just showing up to receive. Now, that's I tried to preach your step on your toes right there. It's okay, okay? It's okay. Smile on my face. I mean, Kurt, I want you to. I, why? Because God wants you in his kingdom agenda. He wants to include you. He has gifted you. You may not even know what it looks like, but he's gifted you as part of the body. You are a part of the body. So maybe you don't serve yet. Listen to what he says right here. He says, and all those who have separated themselves from neighboring people. He said, everybody else who even claims to be a part of Israel, you're supposed to sign this thing. You're supposed to be included in this battle so we don't go back to where we came from. Can I get it in writing? Here's, there's five things that I found in, in this commitment covenant. The first one is a faithfulness to God and his word. A faithfulness to God and his word. In chapter 10, look at 29, 
B, the second part. He says, first, we want to obey carefully all the commandments of the Lord our God, along with his ordinances and his statutes. He says, we're going to get back to this book. We're going to saturate our lives with it. We're going to, we're going to Take it and chew on it and digest it and let it just permeate through our being. We want this book to be the book that we live by. You've heard it before, Bible, right? Basic instructions before leaving earth. It tells us everything we need to know about God. It tells us everything we know about us. It tells us everything we know to have a relationship with that God. It tells me how to be a man. It tells me how to be a husband. It tells me how to be a father and a grandfather. It tells me how to be a preacher. It tells me how to live my life. If you're a female, it tells you how to be a lady. It tells you how to be a, a wife and a grandmother. It tells you uh, how you can serve in the local church. It tells us all how we can be the best employee our employer has. It tells us how we can raise our families. It tells us how to spend our money. It tells us how to spend our time. It tells us of things we need to be aware of. It tells us of things that we need to avoid and walk away from. It warns us of things that will ensnare us. It encourages us to those things that will help us. It's all right here in this book. And Nehemiah knew it, and he said, listen, we're going to get back to the book. We are going to live a life of faithfulness to God through his word. Because you will never be faithful to God if you don't know what God's word is trying to speak to you about. 2 Timothy 2.15, in the New Testament, it tells us to show ourselves, it says, study to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed. It says we're supposed to study the book. I want to encourage you. In this moment, if you were writing a covenant with God today, I want you to think for just a second what that statement might look like. God, this is where I've been with my faithfulness to you and your word. But God, moving forward, I'm telling you, this is where I'm going to be with your word. I'm writing it. I'm signing it. I'm sealing it. And I'm going to see it through. Now listen. If you listen to the Holy Spirit and you respond obediently, repentantly to him and agree with what he wants you to do in, in terms of your faithfulness to God and his word, listen to me, you will receive a blessing. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. Name it, claim it, blab it, and grab it. I am a preacher who preaches the truth and the promises of God's word. And when we get in his word, it changes our life and he blesses us. He meets us at that point of obedience and our lives change and he'll bless you. He'll bless your family. He'll bless your career. I am a walking poster child testimonial of somebody who doesn't bring that much to the table. But our whole life, God has chosen to bless me since I started being hungry for his word. I'm telling, Kendra knows it's the truth. She married a loser in a fancy package. 
It ain't too fancy anymore. Don't, don't you amen me. Okay. But I'm not a loser anymore. I was, a born, I was born again. I was a Christian. I was a, I was a Christian. I was a loser Christian. I was defeated, miserable. She knows. We got married. She was on fire for Jesus. She knew scripture. I knew where to find it. Somewhere in this book. Okay. I, honestly, I was in my 20s, raised in church. I didn't know the difference. I, I didn't know the real difference between Noah and Moses. And I was raised in church. Because you know I had this learning thing. It didn't work. I'd heard it all, but it didn't. It just, right through. Went here and right through. None of it landed. And then the Holy Spirit touched me in 1988. And the word became a living word. Okay? And my life changed. My career changed. My family changed. My relationships changed. My walk with God changed. And it was all because of this book. It wasn't because I brought anything to the table. And when I got in this book, I realized what I brought to the table was what God created me to bring to the table. Nothing. And that's where he wanted me. He says, I appreciate you showing up realizing you don't have anything because I am the keeper of all things. And you came to the right place, so I'm going to start giving you everything you need to accomplish what I've put you on that planet for. And he'll do the same thing for you because God is not a respecter of persons. And he wants to use you in a mighty way. Faithfulness to God. Think about what that covenant would look like for you. Number two, family commitment. Family commitment. I wanted a family portrait because the Bible was the object lesson for the first one. I wanted a family portrait for the second one because I absolutely stink and love my family. I love my wife. I love my girls. I love my son-in-laws. I love my grandchildren probably more than all the rest of them combined. I don't know what that is. Uh, they're just they're rock stars in my world, and they bring a tremendous amount of joy to me. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just I'm moved by it. And so I wanted a family portrait, and we really don't have one. And so yesterday, I came up with some really nice family portraits. They were done by a professional photographer. His name is Chuck E. Cheese, okay? Yeah. So we took our grandkids to, to this uh, and had our pictures made at Chuck E. Cheese Photography, located on Kingston Pike. Okay? I don't know if you can see it or not. I can see it. And here's what's funny. You got to know me. I don't sit still. You got to know this guy right here. He don't sit still. You got to know this girl right here. She just, she's ready for a picture. Okay? We went in that little seat. We swapped her little card. And these pictures came out. Anybody in here been to Chuck E. Cheese's? There's a hundred just like this terrible pictures laying in the floor. You know, where the whole picture's one eyeball. Because you can't figure out where you're supposed to look. Your head's out of the way. You know what I'm talking about. This is what it looked like. Okay? And when I saw these, I told Kendra, I said, Oh, here's my pictures for tomorrow. Okay? Family commitment. 2,500 years ago, Nehemiah realized the family was under attack. And the family is under attack today. Why did we take these two little guys over to Chuck E. Cheese's to get a photograph? No. Because I like whack-a-frog? No. I'll be honest, I do cheat a little bit. When he's missing some frogs, I go ahead and tap them with my hand, get some extra tickets. Okay? <laughs> Confession. Is it because I like skee-ball? No. In fact, 
Judson's favorite game in the whole place is sticking the tickets into the machine and watching them suck the tickets out of his hand. All right? Do I go for that? No. We take these little guys to Chuck E. Cheese because we love them passionately. And we invest in their little lives, look into their little eyes, hug them and love on them in the best and hardest moments in that little kid's life because we want to invest something more. We're going to invest a good time and some good laughs all so we can get their ear so that they know we love them. And when we tell them something, it's real. And so we can start investing something far greater than Chucky, the God of creation. And you know what it looks like? It looks like a four-year-old. While I was in Brazil, I get a video, uh, and he's, he learned his first Bible verse. I can do all things through Christ. And they learned it in children's church or preschool right over here. And then Caitlin reinforced it. And Kendra, being a teacher, she will drive you up a wall trying to get you to perform for her. Okay? So she's like on Judson. Say it one more time for Papa. Say it one more time. And he's like, Whew. he's starting to hate God's word just because she's making him say it all the time. Okay? So, so here's what he says. I can do all things. And Kendra, through? He goes, I can do all things through Christ. Are you kidding me, guys? That's what he says. That's not scripture. That's, that's his little ending. Are you kidding me, guys? Okay. Now, now, what is that? It's a family commitment. Now, watch what happens 2,500 years ago. They're saying, how can we move forward and not go back? How can we get out of this cycle of doing the same things over again. Verse 30, he says, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the neighboring peoples. And we will not take their daughters in marriage for our sons. And that's it. You say, you got all that story with them pictures of Chuck E. Cheese from that? You know what he's saying? He's saying, we are no longer going to accept what the world says the family should look like. He says, we're not going to let our daughters marry pagan men. We're not going to let our sons marry pagan women, P men and women who pursue a, a God other than our God. We're going to protect this family. We're going to let God define this family. We're not going to erode or dilute or, uh, or uh, uh, manipulate what God's idea for the family is. We're going to teach them from very early in their life, a man is supposed to be a man. A boy is supposed to be a boy. It's written in your DNA by God. A girl is supposed to be a girl becoming a woman, and it's written in your DNA by the author, God of the universe. Girls are not supposed to spend their lives passionately with females. Guys are not supposed to spend their lives passionately with males. Men and women grow up, and sometimes they get married and procreate and have children, and that's the family. And if they choose to be alone, they just stay alone. But we're not going to say, oh, Everybody else says this is okay. Science, whatever, says this is the way that we're made. And we're just going to embrace that. And, and we're going to let them as a four-year-old decide they're a boy, but they want to be a girl. It's garbage. It's full of the devil. And it is not found in this book. And we as a family are going to live according to this book. Now, right now, in this very room, 
there are those that's uncomfortable truth, and it's truth, and it's uncomfortable because you have somebody in your family, somebody that you work with, somebody you're close to who may live a homosexual lifestyle, who may struggle with sexual identity. And you say, well, I just, what do you do with that? Here's what you do with that. You help them understand, were they born that way? Sure they were. You were born that way, a sinner separated from God. All of us are born the way we're born. And God comes into the way we're born and says, I want to give you a reborn experience. I want to take your broken, sin-cursed little life and touch it with the righteousness, the rightness of Jesus and start all over again and make you into who I want you to be. And it will not look like what the world says it's supposed to look like. And so as a family, we say, you know what? The family that God wants our family to be is the family that we want our family to be. And when somebody has issues in our family, we love them. Our grandchildren, are they perfect? Pretty close. Good. But they'll still, they'll still blow it. Our little, little girl, she'll still blow a diaper out right out on you. That ain't perfect. That's of the devil. Okay. And that little boy, sometimes he gets tired and hungry, man, and he's irritable. And, man, he's hard to deal with because he still has this little sin nature. We just keep on loving him. And those people in your circle, in your world, and in your family who's struggling, you love them. But the greatest form of unlove is refusing to tell them the truth of what God says about where they are. We say, well, I don't, I don't want to hurt their feelings, man. That's not loving them. Tell them what it is that God says about this life. I'm blessed to get to marry a lot of young families because we have a lot of young people uh, in our church. And I've got a couple of weddings uh, coming up here in the near future. And, and, and a lot of you I've married, in, and I love it, okay? I, I love being a part of that little thing right there where, where God puts two together. I just think it's cool. The very first thing I ask them, session number one of pre-counseling, uh, I want you to write your testimony. Write it out. I've had people say, uh, they've come to the first meeting, uh, did you get your assignment? No. What happened? I don't have one. I don't have a testimony. You want to fix that? Yeah, what does that even mean? I share the gospel to get saved. Okay? Why is that? Why is that the first thing I ask them? It says in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? It's important that we come together with the right heart and the right relationship with God. It's why I can't marry somebody who's lost and somebody who's saved. It's not a racial thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's a, it's a God thing. I was talking with Scott the other day, and we were talking about it. He's got a daughter, and, you know, they start dating. He's like, I don't care really who she marries as long as, he, as, long as this person loves Jesus more than my daughter or son. That's the main thing because they get that one right. They're off to a good start. And that's what we do when we see, uh, when we come together to begin the process of getting ready for marriage. So I want to issue a warning, families. I'm so proud of our young families. Young people bringing little boys and girls to church. Man, you get, you're getting it. You're just going to have to trust me now because you don't see in the past. You see in the future. Kendra and I can look in the past. And of all the things we've ever done, faithfulness to God and his word, 
commitment to family, and the other three things we're going to see next week, those things, what Nehemiah said, is still real. It's still real. And yet, what do we do? We inadvertently make these decisions and invite the enemy into our life. We invite him. How do we do that? Comcast. Unmonitored television viewing. I don't know if you watch television. Garbage. You can't watch anything for any time that there's not two women or two men or men and a woman and some adulterous relationship and nudity, mild pornography throughout the television. We have unmonitored access to the internet. Extremely dangerous. We have social media where little boys and little girls, especially little girls, I think, are brutal to other little girls. Somebody in our own church, neighbors across the street, put posted on social media, we hate you. We never want to play with you. We don't want you to come over to our house anymore. You're ugly. Brutal. Brutal. And yet we allow that in our in our homes. And I want to tell you, dads, the buck stops with you. God holds you first, personally responsible for your family. Now, women who don't have a man in your household, I applaud you for stepping up to the plate, okay? But the responsibility is ultimately on the man as the head of the household, secondly to the woman, and you all come together and you raise these families. And let me just go on record saying this. We live in the most fatherless society that America has ever known. And it's because of spineless, useless, loser dads who somehow find themselves able to make a baby but not committed to raise it. Pitiful. In fact, I'll speak into it what God's Word says. For a man not to take care of his own family, he is worse than an infidel. How you get worse than lost, I'm not sure. But that's what it says. So I want to challenge you, young families, keep engaged in the game, in the kingdom agenda. And one day, like Kendra and I, we can look back and say, it was good. It was good. And we'll look at our children and say, God's still doing it. Because he wants to do great things, man. He does not want that same cycle of rebellion, repentance, restoration, repeat. I want you to bow your heads and we're finished. Billy Graham said, the immutable law of sowing and reaping has held sway. We are now in the hapless, we are now the hapless processors of moral depravity. And we seek in vain for a cure. The tares or the weeds of indulgence have overgrown the wheat of moral restraint. And our homes have suffered. When the morals of society are upset, the family is the first to suffer. The home is the basic unit of society. And the nation is only as strong as her families. He wrote that in 1960. The family was a different thing 60 years ago. God still has the guidelines for us. I want to encourage every heart in here not to wait because it's not too late. You can start right now. How do you begin? 
you begin just like the nation of Israel. You prayerfully say, God, I'm committed. I'm willing to make a covenant with you. I'm willing to write down on paper what it is you want me to do regarding my commitment to you and your word, regarding my family. I will write it. I will sign it. I will seal it. And I will see it through. I want you to consider that, what that looks like in your personal life. Nobody else matters. It's your walk with your God. And maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. You, you don't understand a relationship with a godly father. I want you to know God loves you so much. He came to this earth and died on a cross for you. He loves you right where you are. And he loves you way too much to leave you in that state. He wants to invite you on a journey with him through Jesus' son. And maybe you just need to, for the first time, surrender to that grace and say, God, I believe you love me right where I am. I know I'm a sinner. I believe the truth that, God, you came to this earth through Jesus and died on a cross and rose again. I want you to come into my life and save me. And I want you to be the Lord and the master of my life from this day forward. I give you all of me, and I receive in exchange all of you. Thank you for hearing my sinful life prayer. Thank you for saving me on this day. I will never be the same in Jesus' name.